Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. For me, it's a great privilege to be here. Um, Lovely to see the church so full as this service is growing. It's nearly outstripping the the venue that we're worshipping in, and it's always a great thing to see. As you know, at the moment, we're working our way through the book of Acts, and for me, it's been a privilege to prepare this because I haven't read Acts in detail for quite some time. But one of the things I've always loved reading about is history, and more recently, I've been reading about church history. And um, as the, Acts is the main body of church history in the Bible. It was written by a man called Luke, and he was a close friend and a travelling companion of Paul. He was a careful researcher. Like me, he was a doctor, but he was also a very accurate historian and displayed an intimate knowledge of Roman laws, Roman customs, and also the geography of the known world, which was the Mediterranean. Personally, I've had the opportunity to visit a number of places mentioned in Acts, and in June, Gay and I had the privilege with Phoebe and Andrew of going to Italy for the wedding of our eldest daughter, who lives in London but decided to get married in Italy. And after the wedding, we went to Sicily, um, Gay and I, for a week and looked around, and we ended up in a town called Syracuse, found ourselves visiting an old church that was in a catacomb and the guide said, and this is where Paul probably visited when he came to Syracuse and I didn't remember Paul being to Syracuse, I thought it must be church history. So I go back, look in my Bible, read in Acts 28, as Paul was going to Rome, he spent three days in Syracuse and probably started the church there. So the history of that book is incredible. Acts 4 is what we're dealing with today, and it's in three parts. So I'm going to concentrate on the first two, but as I was sitting listening to Mia, realised really the third part is probably more aligning with where we're at today. So if there's time, I'll um, get to the third part as well. But I just want to read from Acts 4 first, um, so that we set the scene. So while Peter and John were speaking to the people, and you remember last week in Acts 3, um, it's the lead up to this. Peter and John were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard and some Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them and since it was already evening they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The next day the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas The high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, have we been questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognised them as men who'd been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing they could say. 
So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chambers and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny they've poured a miracle performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it but to keep them from speaking their propaganda any further we must warn them not to speak in any name but any name in Jesus name again so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus but Peter and John replied do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him we cannot stop telling them about everything we've seen and heard then the council threatened them further, but finally they let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who'd been lame more than 40 years. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voice together in prayer to God. O sovereign God, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why are the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here and in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May, many, may miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They preached the word of God with boldness. I'll leave it there, and if we have time, we'll get to the last passage. So reading through the book of Acts, and then reading about the ongoing history of the church, it's just amazing that the church survived and thrived. There was ongoing persecution right from the start, and along the way, that continued along with major blunders that the church has made. And you just wonder, is it still here today? However, we know that God had plans for his church and he promised that it wouldn't be snuffed out. As we look at all this history as a small church denomination in a far-flung corner of the world, in fact, we're well away from where the church was founded, both in time and place, it's very much reading church, worth reading church history to put our own present position in context, both temporal but also eternal. There's also a great temptation to sit on the top of history of the past 2,000 years and think we've got it all together as each generation before us has mined a more accurate version of the truth, and we're here today with the ultimate truth. However, we owe a great debt of gratitude to the previous church fathers for their faithfulness that saw this massive growth of the church and also the correction of the many heresies that grew up along the way. It's worth reading, and it covers people like Clement of Alexandria, Polycarp, Jerome, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther... John Wesley, just to name a few. And Acts gives us a very accurate history of the first years of the church, and at present we're really just looking at the first few months of church history. Around the time of Jesus, there were many figures who started movements and had followers. Some claimed to be the Messiah. But they basically all died out at the time of their death or shortly afterwards. And the authorities of the day felt the same what happened to the followers of Jesus after his death. But what they didn't bargain on was was that Jesus was in a totally different category to all the others. He was the son of God and he would rise from the dead. And as concerns his legacy on earth, he promised in Matthew 16, 18, 
Now I say, you are Peter, which means the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And here we find the start of this promise coming to fruition. We remember Peter as a disciple, an impulsive man, denied Jesus three times, he ran away, tried to hide, but here he is building the church right from the ground floor, and it's a body that's still functioning today, despite its many failings and flaws. So picking up from last week where Andrew preached so well about the healing of the lame man that had been sitting at the temple gates for 40 years, so everyone in Jerusalem knew about him, it just turbocharged the whole situation. And in first one, we find Peter speaking to the people, continuing to speak after the man had been healed. The man, we read, was running around leaping and giving thanks to God. But while Peter and John were speaking, there was a group of unhappy priests, temple guards and Sadducees who were really put out by what happened. So they confront Peter and John. The main problem that they had from what we read is that they were preaching that through Jesus there was the resurrection of the dead. Now the Sadducees don't figure much in the Gospels but they were a liberal sect who didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They actually died out as a group after AD 70 when Rome came and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. We hear nothing more about them. But it's interesting when you look, there's a shift as we go from the Gospels to the book of Acts in that in the Gospels we read a great deal about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were always confronting Jesus. Jesus had it in for them because he could see through their hypocrisy. The Sadducees seem to be the bit players. But come to the book of Acts and it's the other way around. The Sadducees at the start of the book of Acts are the main players and the reason probably is is that they realised the resurrection of the dead was anathema to them, so they took on the persecution and confrontation of the early disciples and apostles. So the message of the early church was based on the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what caused the Sadducees to act so violently against it. If we look in today's term, the Pharisees are probably more like the fundamentalists, in that they stuck with the letter of the law. The Sadducees we would see as liberal Christians who didn't believe everything in the Bible, um, took, it, took it liberally. So Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, not only the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection of those that followed him. So the, Pharisee, the Sadducees come and take offence because it gets at the fundamental belief that they had that there's no resurrection from the dead. So what do they do? They throw Peter and John into jail. And this is the first recorded evidence of a Christian group being jailed for their beliefs, but it's something that has followed right through our history up until today where there's Christians in this world that we live in at the moment that are in jail for their faith. So it started something new. It's interesting they were jailed because there was no time late in the day to have a trial and by law they were not supposed to try someone by night, so they dumped them in jail ready for a trial the next day. But if you read back to the Gospels, we find that they tried Jesus by night. They were so keen to kill him that they didn't want to wait another day and it still had to fit in with the, um, the, the timing that God had ordained. So we find as they're in jail that the church has increased to 5,000. So we find just a couple of months ago there was 12, then it went to 120, then it went to 3,000, then it went to 5,000 men plus women and children. And that is explosive and exponential growth. And if you drew a graph, it would be like that. And one thing you know about any organisation, exponential growth is very hard to continue because you just run out of room as you go up the, the vertical axis. So in verse 5 to 7, Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin. 
and they're put on trial by the Sanhedrin, which is the Council of the Elders, a bit like our parliament today, uh, be like our parliament and the head of all the, the faith groups. And they're being questioned as to why they did it and by what power they did it. So we find in verse 8, Peter's ready to answer, but it's not just Peter answering, it's the Holy Spirit through Peter that answers. So it basically gave him power. So he enters the Sanhedrin and actually ends up putting the Sanhedrin on trial, even though he was supposed to be the guy in the dock. We find Peter, just an uneducated fisherman, he just recently denied Jesus, denied him three times, as we read, only two months to three months before. He tried to hide from the fact that he even knew Jesus when he was confronted as Jesus was on trial. And there'd been this incredible change after his death and resurrection. And it's an argument for the truth of the Gospels. If someone challenged you with your life and said, you know, do you believe this? If you say yes, you'll be shot. Um, most of us, unless we had a really good reason to believe it, we would say, no, we don't believe it and save our lives. But almost all the original witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus were prepared to die gruesome deaths, and many of them did die gruesome deaths, rather than deny what they'd seen with their own eyes. And that's one of the powerful reasons as to why you've got to take the Gospels as being true. So Peter gets up and he's ready to deliver, and this is his fourth sermon since Jesus' resurrection. We find in Acts 1 he gives a brief explanation about Judas and the need to elect another apostle. In Acts 2 there's his great message on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. In Acts 3 we read last week when Andrew preached about the sermon when the lame man was healed, and here he is in Acts 4 before the Sanhedrin, the head Jewish people of the day. So we read in verse 7 that the Sanhedrin demand Peter and John, by what power or in whose name have you done this? So they've basically given Peter an open invitation and the Holy Spirit emboldens Peter to answer them. His answer is pretty clever. So first up he appeals to their better nature and he says, are you taking exception for me doing a good deed for a crippled man? You know, what's wrong about healing or helping someone who's crippled? It's a rhetorical question, but the obvious answer is that it's a good thing to do a good deed. So he sets the stage by saying that. But then he comes out all guns blazing. He tells them straight that the miracle was done in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who they, the very people in front of him, the priests, the temple guards and the Sadducees, those people had been the person that had crucified him, but God himself had raised him from the dead. To add more credence to his argument, somehow in the background of this inquisition, the lame man that was healed is standing, probably jumping up and down for joy. So he's there as exhibit A. He goes on to rub it in further in verse 11 where he quotes the scripture and he says, in Psalm 118, 22, you can read, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Now if you compare Psalm 118, 22, which is what I've read, with what Peter said, he changed it slightly from the stone the builders rejected to the stone you builders rejected. So he's throwing it straight back in their face. They were the current builders and he laid the blame for killing Jesus squarely on them. What I find is there's great comfort that we can rely on the Holy Spirit to give us words to say when we have to speak up for our faith. And I'm sure many of us have been in that position. And as I was preparing this, I remember the first time I went to North Korea in 2015. Mitch was with me. We were first time in there together. Um, the advice we got from the guy I took over was don't mention the name of Jesus, don't talk about being a Christian because you may not actually come out. You can be jailed for life or for a long time for mentioning that along with not taking a Bible. However, he said, if you get asked something, answer honestly. So 
we were driving along in a vehicle one day and my mind uh, pointed to a building on a hill and said, see, there's a church up there and looked up and there was a classic church like an English church. Um, and then she said to me, are you a Christian? Open question. So I said, yes, I'm a Christian. In fact, um, today's a very special day. It was a Friday. It happened to be Good Friday, the day we were there. And said, um, yes, in fact, we're both Christians and that's partly why we're here because we believe that Jesus died and we, today we celebrate that back in our home country and around the world. But more importantly, two days, three days later, he rose from the dead. And um, conversation went on and then uh, Mitch actually said, what do you think happens when you die to the, to the minder? And she gave us the most mournful look and said, nothing, that's it. And um, at that stage, the other minder cut in and changed the conversation and the conversation ended. But I've prayed for that lady often and just wonder where that ended. Um, end result was we got out of North Korea and went back many times and um, weren't, weren't apprehended in any way. But um, I was told when I came back out, there's a chance next time in they may grab you because that goes up the hierarchy to be reported on. So the Holy Spirit, I believe, gave me words that day and I'm sure we've all been in the boat. It's just the same. And the Holy Spirit certainly gave Peter the words. The other thing about this incident, it's a great irony of Christian... Of, of history that Christians are so often persecuted for doing acts of kindness and for doing good things. It just gets twisted the wrong way and you'd have to ask the question, well, why is it so? You do a good thing like heal a lame person or whatever we do. I believe the roots come from the enemy, from Satan, who wants nothing better than to thwart the work of God's church on earth. And that's been his prime mission for the last 2,000 years. But Peter doesn't even leave it there. He pushes his argument even further while he's got the opportunity. And he states in verse 12, which is a really key verse for all of us here today and for all of followers of Jesus. He goes on to say, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And it's basically a restating of Jesus' own words in John 14:6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. They're strong words, and in our current society, they're even stronger words in many ways because there's such a strong belief in our post-Christian society that there's actually many roads to salvation and there's many roads to eternal life, and Jesus is just one of them. But this verse makes it abundantly clear that this is not so. It's this statement that many believers find so offensive, and it's the stumbling block that, people that Jesus talked about and the stumbling block for coming to salvation. There's a chap called Lee Strobel, who you may or may not have heard of, but he was an atheist and a journalist, and he tried to disprove God, but in the process he became a Christian. He went on to write a number of books that are called The Case Series. So there's a book called The Case for Faith, The Case for Creator, and they became bestsellers. But before his conversion, he wrote, it's one thing to claim to be a way to God, but the way, that sounds pretty intolerant. However, Strobel feels quite differently now for having come to Christ and grown in his understanding of truth, he spends his time teaching that John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, is one of the greatest statements and one of our greatest doctrines. And I just want to read what he says because he just sums that up so well. Many people consider it arrogant, narrow-minded and bigoted for Christians to contend that the only path to God must be through Jesus of Nazareth. In a day of religious pluralism and tolerance, this exclusivity claim is politically incorrect. It's a verbal slap in the face to other belief systems. It's interesting that some people claim the gospel of Christ is no longer relevant if it claims to be exclusive or the only way to God. People go on to say, to be relevant, you have to be tolerant. You have to accept the fact that there are many ways to God. Christianity is just one of them. But in fact, the opposite is true. 
If Christianity is only one of many ways to God, it is irrelevant. It no longer matters if you're a Christian. In fact, it's the exclusivity of the gospel that preserves the relevance of Christianity in every age. And that just sums it up so well in my mind. So anyway, Peter gave his impassioned defence of his actions. We go on to read in verse 13 that the members of the council were amazed that Peter and John were such ordinary, uneducated men and noted that they'd been with Jesus. Probably the greatest compliment and the greatest qualification of all. To be effective for Christ, you don't necessarily need a great education, but you do need to know that what it is to be with Jesus and to walk with him. In verses 14 to 18, we go on to read that the healed man was there to add proof, exhibit A, as to what Peter had said, and to help confound the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council. They went on, kicked Peter and John out for a while and debated amongst themselves as to what they would do and they realised they were between a rock and a hard place. The whole city had heard of this miracle and were amazed. And this is on the back of the recent events that were still fresh in people's mind about a man called Jesus that had died and was said to be resurrected and then an amazing thing that happened 50 days later that we know as Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell amongst these believers. So the best the Sanhedrin could come up with after they deliberated was to command them to stop speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. So we read the response of Peter and John after they were told to top speak, stop speaking. It went on to say, we need to obey God rather than man. And that's the bottom line. In our society until recently, we've had not a lot of trouble with laws being able to obey God and still obey the laws of the land. But our nation is changing. There's laws changed in Victoria and coming in Tasmania where it is illegal to pray for someone that comes to ask for prayer on point of being put in jail. And that's already in existence in some of our states. And unfortunately, the trend seems to be going to other states. In verse 21 and 22, we read the upshot of all of this and we find that all of Jerusalem were praising God over this miracle and the council were definitely on the back foot. In fact, they were on the wrong side of history, as we know. They wouldn't have seen it at the time, but um, they were definitely on the wrong side of history. The second part of this passage, <coughs> we find Peter and John returned to the other believers and reported what had transpired during the previous 24 hours. That led to a great prayer meeting. And it was interesting, what they prayed for was not for protection. They'd just been in jail. They could have ended badly. They could have been um, threatened with with being killed the same as Jesus was, but they didn't pray for protection. They acknowledged the sovereignty of God and asked for boldness to keep on preaching. So in what ways did they acknowledge God's sovereignty in this? Firstly, in three ways. They acknowledged that God's the creator. In verse 24, they said, you made the heavens, the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they began their prayer by hearkening back to the start of the Bible in Genesis where they addressed their prayer to the God who made heavens and earth. Secondly, they addressed God not only as creator, but as the communicator, the one who'd inspired and given them the Old Testament scriptures. Because remember, they didn't have the New Testament that we have. And in verse 25 to 6, we read, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Thirdly, they realised that God, not only the great creator and great communicator, but he's the great commander of history. And they go on to quote Psalm 2, which says... Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord, against his anointed one, which is the Messiah or Christ. So a thousand years before Jesus came, the Holy Spirit predicted through the words of King David, who wrote that psalm, 
that the kings of the earth and the rulers, who were the Sanhedrin, would rise up against the Messiah when he came. And this had just happened. And they go on to talk about that in verse 27. They say, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, people of Israel and the city, to conspire against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had dedicated beforehand should happen. Everything happened to Jesus was everything that happened to Jesus was foretold and forecast in the prophets. God is in control of history, both our history as we know it, but the wider history. He commands time, and the Bible says that civil authorities and secular rulers will oppose Christ and Christianity right from the beginning. We find these early disciples and followers now having acknowledged God as the almighty creator, communicator and commander, they end their prayer with a request and we read in verse 29 and 30, they said, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your, ha stretch out your hand and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So here we find them asking for boldness and, a and for an extension of their power to facilitate miracles. That's a great response in adversity, just thankfulness and praise rather than just asking for protection. It's a great reminder to us that we may just ask God for boldness because um, I think protection comes with that rather than as the other way around. Verse 31 we read, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So the very thing that they asked God for, boldness, Holy Spirit, bang, hit them and lo and behold, they went out with boldness. So the believers' response was that they were encouraged rather than scared and they were filled with the Holy Spirit which gave them this boldness. This amazing encounter, we can just look back over those preceding verses and find there's three statements that stand out. The first is, there is no other name. Peter tells us that the lame man was not healed by Peter's own power or words. It was the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who the council had crucified. Jesus is alive and he did this, and there was no other name under heaven amongst men must be saved. No other name. So that was the first thing. Second, there's no other option. Peter and um, John were told, well, you do have an option. The option we want you to do is not to preach in that person's name, in Jesus' name. But they replied they had to obey God rather than man. And whether we think so or not, the simple fact is that we too have no other options. We should not and cannot help ourselves. We cannot help but preach and teach in his name because there's no other name under heaven where men can be saved. Thirdly is there's no other power. It's not our power that allows us to do such things. We're not clever, we're not strong, we're not particularly good. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do such things. And it's there for the asking, and we're promised that it will be dispensed in all situations. And I'm sure we've all been in situations, and I know I have, where it wasn't my cleverness or whatever that did it, but the Holy Spirit inspired me or gave me a word or gave me strength or whatever to do it. Um, I'd just like to now look at the third section which we haven't read, which is 32 to 37. And I'll just read that out first. Um, so after that, after they'd play, prayed and been given boldness, we find that all the believers were united in heart and mind and they all felt what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. 
He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money to the apostles. So a number of things from that passage, that they had unity in heart and mind. And unity is one of the things that the Holy Spirit dispenses. Um, when the Holy Spirit's there and we're all worshipping God, there's a spirit of unity. And that's something you pray for the church, for this body of believers, but the church across. And so often disunity has been what's reigned. And that's Satan's attempt to attack the church, bring it down and thwart God's promises from the start of the Christian faith. The other thing, they had an awareness of everything they owned was God's and not their own. And that's where generosity comes from, to realise that God's been generous to us and in fact, it's not what we've got. As you know, we come into this world with nothing and we leave with nothing. All that we've been given has been given by God. Some people get hung up on this and feel that we should sell everything we own and give it away. And that's not really the drive of that. It's just what some people felt led to do. But the other thing is we read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when we think of kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness, generosity is at the heart of all those. There's no law against these things. And what I've noticed is that someone that is generally exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit exhibits those fruits and generosity is often at the heart of it. And this church is a generous church and I know of other churches that are extremely generous. Luke likes to cover all his bases and he's a man for detail and he talks about a man called... Um, Joseph, who we know as Barnabas. And Barnabas is a great guy in the book of Acts. He was a constant follower with Paul and Luke. He travelled around and his name was Son of Encouragement. We read that he was generous to a fault in that he sold everything he owned, lived on the island of Cyprus. Somehow as a Levi, they weren't supposed to own land, but here he was living in Cyprus as a Levite um, and owning land. But he sold the field that he owned and bought the money to disciples. And I think it's quite fitting in conclusion that on the last Sunday of our giving month is we talk about generosity and right from the get-go, right from the start of the Christian church, um, generosity has been at the heart of it. So this morning we heard from Mia about A21 and encourage you just to be generous, remembering that nothing that we have is ours. It was actually something God given us and we're responsible for it. But in conclusion, I'd just like to challenge you, if you don't know Jesus, I think most of us here do, but if you don't, Jesus basically offers us eternal life. And Paul says in Romans, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, believe with all your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If this morning you don't know Jesus, I'd encourage you to get to know him. If you need to speak to someone, happy to speak with you, or Darren, or there'll be people over here for prayer afterwards, please come forward and do it. For those of you that know Jesus, realise that we've got a fantastic heritage behind us, but that heritage will only go to the next generation while each of us is prepared to live a life that's honouring to God so that our life's an example and to be prepared to share our faith with others. The church has only gone from generation to generation as each generation has told the next. So when we look around the young children here this morning, they're the next generation of this church and they're the ones that we should be sowing into as well as those in this town of Tamworth and beyond. So in closing, just like to encourage you, have a good look at Acts. There's a lot of meat in it. And this morning, that's only really touched just a little bit of Acts 4. And I suspect next week we'll look at Acts 5. So thank you. Hey again. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. 
there is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au. And thanks again for listening.